When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. Not only that, we bring you expert insight and analysis on all the issues affecting global football. As usual, I'm joined by Duncan Castles, the transfer guru for today's Monday edition. We'll be starting off with news, as always, and it's news news all the way today. With the window being open, we will be giving you everything up to date and before anyone else. Duncan, we had a very interesting conversation with our old friend Jonathan Northcroft uh, last Friday, which has um, sparked a lot of debate on social media. Um, and also, I think, uh, some news that we could probably bring our listeners today. Yeah, and, and I believe you have that news on, on what... Uh what is happening with Arsenal and and the potential of them actually making a signing and a significant signing this summer? Well, it would be a significant signing. Uh, we know uh, that Arsenal have had an initial bid of around £15 million turned down for Kieran Tierney, Celtic and Scotland left-back. What I'm able to tell you is that um, Celtic consider that particular bid as very much undervaluing uh, Tierney um, on the basis that a fullback signing for Premier League clubs in the current uh, situation can easily fetch between thirty to fifty million pounds. We have Manchester United chasing Aaron Wan Bissaka at Crystal Palace, a player who doesn't have the international or Champions League experience of Tierney, and offering fifty-five million pounds for him. As well as uh, abroad, we've seen Bayern Munich spend more than one hundred twenty million euros on two fullbacks for their club. Celtic feel that they are justified in asking for £30 million for the player who is going into year three of a six-year contract he signed in 2017. Now, at the time, Tierney declared, and it's very much the case, he's a he's an honest young lad who's always been a Celtic fan, and he said, why would I want to move? Because I'm playing for the club I've always supported and the club I love. What has changed? Well, we can tell you two things have changed. One, and probably most importantly, is that Celtic have told Tierney they want to cash in. That the amount of money being offered for him is optimum uh, for them in terms of making money from a player who clearly came through their academy. So all of it is 100% profit. They have said to Arsenal, or indicated to Arsenal, that the £30 million fee is non-negotiable and that they will have to come much nearer to that. My information from sources at Arsenal is that Arsenal are willing to increase their opening offer. But going only to £20 million in a guaranteed payment, plus around £5 million in add-ons, again, something we'll see a lot this summer with regards to how clubs are structuring fees and building them up. Now, that will get them close to Celtic's valuation. Celtic will play hardball, I'm sure, with regards to trying to get anything more out of Arsenal they can. Arsenal are not a poor club. They are desperate to sign players, and Tierney clearly is a very, very high-quality acquisition. Second thing that's changed for Kieran Tierney is speaking to his international teammate and friend, Andy Robertson, who is left back at Liverpool. And Robertson, having won the Champions League at the end of last season, has told Tierney, don't 
default your career for the sake of staying with a club that you support. I'm being played at Liverpool. It's amazing. I'm top six. Arsenal are top six club. You get to play uh, with much better quality players in a much better league environment. And the only way to advance your career is to come and play in the Premier League or something similar. Now, for that reason, for those reasons, I think that Tierney is very much uh, likely to join Arsenal as long as Arsenal are willing to meet Celtic's demands with regards to the structure of payments and indeed the overall valuation. Duncan, I'd like to ask you, you've seen Tierney play. Do you think he's suited to Arsenal's style of play? Do you think that's going to be a transfer that will enhance them as a squad? Look, if they can secure the player, he will definitely upgrade their squad. Left back is a is a serious um, weakness for Arsenal at present. Um, Centre back is also a position of of, uh, of problems for Arsenal. And Kieran Tierney can play centre back. Has uh, played at international level, played at Champions League level. So you you're giving yourself um, a couple of options there, particularly if when um, I Emery decides to play. Um, a back three or a three centre back um, system next season because I think Tierney is particularly comfortable on the left side of of that uh, setup, and um, you know there, there is a, a general consensus amongst the scouting world that Tierney is a player um, who has the potential to be a top left back. He's he's demonstrated that in the Champions League. Um, he has the technical skills that uh, scouts are looking for uh, in that position, as well as as uh, uh, you know, decent physical capacity. So there's always been a, a kind of expectation that the player would end up in the Premier League. That the question was who would go for him first, and um, whether he would go straight to a top six club or whether he needed an intermediate stage. And um, I think at Arsenal's situation is such where they're limited in terms of resources, that they're not capable, they're not to to buy players, um, go head-to-head with the, the, the top four clubs, certainly um, financially at present. Um, therefore, uh, looking at those players in, in the intermediate tier makes sense. And even if they pay 30 million, if they were to end up paying 30 million for Tierney, uh, Celtic's asking price, that would um, represent a bargain compared to the 55 million that uh, Manchester United have agreed to pay for Juan Bissaka, for example, who has far less experience, uh, certainly hasn't played Champions League football, um, has only played as a right back in uh, senior professional football, so you don't have that adaptability. But of course, prices are determined by the club you're taking them from. And um, and in this case, Arsenal will be well aware that Celtic have been open to selling Tierney for some time. Uh, last summer, Everton uh, were pretty aggressive about trying to sign Tierney. Um, it was made clear to them that Celtic would do a deal. Similar situation, Celtic were prepared to cash in at the right amount of money. Um, Celtic were asking too much as far as Everton were concerned and Everton tried to structure the deal in which, in, in a form in which a lot of the, the payment would be bonus and performance related um, if they qualified for Champions League, etc, etc, etc. Celtic weren't prepared to accept that. Tierney did not push for the move last summer um, and, and the deal didn't go through. 
I think there's a possibility that could happen again here. I mean, it depends on Celtic's side. It depends how far they're, they're going to come down. But everything I hear about Arsenal is that they are very tight financially, um, that they were working on deals um, going into towards the end of the season in terms of players they wanted um, on the basis that they would be able to bid for them, properly bid for them, if they, they qualified for the Champions League and got the additional revenue um, that, that comes with being in the Champions League. Obviously, they don't have that money now, so the budget is tight unless they manage to sell uh, someone um, at a good price. And um, we mentioned before um, the Chinese interest in Obama Yang um, and the possibility that Arsenal might choose to cash in on a player like Obama Yang who's paid um, very highly in the wage scale to create room um, to deal elsewhere, which seems bizarre given that he finished as Premier League's joint top scorer. But I think it is an indication of where Arsenal are financially. And for that reason, and also I think, because um, Kieran Tierney's had injury problems last season, um, he's had a persistent hip uh, situation, which he's had to have an operation on. I think it will. it might well be difficult for... Celtic to secure that full asking price um, for a player who has that question mark over his recovery and um, who who may not who may resist the move himself. Um, so let's see if uh, where Celtic are prepared to compromise on fee um, and how far Arsenal can go um, to spend on that one position. And, and also, let's see if um, if another of uh, of the Premier League clubs who have been monitoring uh, Tierney um, for some time now are prepared to move in to the market. Now they see another opportunity to buy him, and and as you say, he's probably Celtic's only uh, major sellable asset this summer. Celtic want to raise cash in the transfer market, so that's again a situation that can be exploited by suitors of the player. And Tierney, for me, Duncan, has been a transfer waiting to happen for at least a year, maybe 18 months. Um, apart from Everton, I find it astonishing that other top English clubs have not tried to secure his services. I agree with you that his loyalty to Celtic, as well as um, the question marks over fitness, are a factor in this. But let's say fitness is proven. Um, if if it were me and I was Tierney or his representatives and his family who I know have a big influence on, on his career, I would. the one question I would ask is, is Arsenal the right club? Are they going in the right direction for Tierney's career to progress? Um, one advantage would be almost definite game time because they are struggling at left back. Um, but disadvantage would be, yes, no Champions League, and also, as you said, uh, budget, which is limited, which will limit Arsenal's ability to recruit quality players to make them uh, credible contenders for the Premier League title, uh, if not the Europa League as well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, it's it's I think it's a difficult a difficult one to call. Whereas, obviously, if it were you know a Liverpool or Manchester City, then it would be a no-brainer for Tierney. Um, they're not clubs who are interested. But um, again, Manchester United are looking at left-back as well. Maybe they could be uh, a possibility for him. Again, though, the questions would be the same as Arsenal. Um, how able are they to compete 
and you know what would be, what would be my situation with regards to bettering my career in terms of trophies um, and uh, developing my career as well. I, I, mean, I think Arsenal should be appealing. And this is just my opinion, but I think Arsenal should be appealing to Tierney in the sense that he will get that game time uh, immediately. And uh, you know, it's, it's a, they're not in a great place at present, but they have a plan to to reassert themselves. And if you can get that first jump into the Premier League at a relatively high level club and and do well there. With Arsenal, there's always the possibility of a move further down the line. I think he's an unusual player in that um, there has been this long-standing interest in him. There have been a lot of Premier League clubs looking at him, also clubs abroad looking at him, but he's clearly not encouraged any of these moves. Generally, if you if you have a, a, a footballer of his ability at a, a club with um, you know financial weaknesses, essentially in the global uh, level, which Celtic are, albeit they're winning you know, trophy after trophy in Scotland, they are a club that, uh, that the bigger clubs will pick off their best talent from. Normally in that situation, the player will um, agitate for a move or help facilitate a move, encourage clubs to make bids. Um, I think TNA's representatives uh, uh, will have been in that situation and encouraging bids but it seems from everything you hear about Kieran Tierney is that he has been the resistance point he's the one as a Celtic fan and a, an extremely loyal and dedicated Celtic fan who's been saying no I want to stay where I am um, and I'm quite happy to, to be here for longer um, and that in modern football is definitely unusual you, you don't see that very often um, and, I, and I think you will, if, if it happens this summer, Celtic will take the biggest role in making it happen. Well, from the loyalty of Tierney to the future of Lampard, another effectively one-club man um, who obviously, a day does not go by, it seems, that uh, someone um, either close to him or indeed in the club speaks openly about him rejoining Chelsea. Uh, the two instances I'm speaking about, uh, Didier Drogba um, has spoken about how he believes that Lampard is both the right man and uh, will be uh, the next Chelsea manager. Obviously, we reported the transfer window that Drogba is wanted as a coach with uh, to join Lampard at Chelsea. But also, and I think as interestingly, Duncan, uh, young Tammy Abraham, who's spent the last two seasons out on loan uh, at different clubs last year with Aston Villa, has committed to staying at Chelsea next season and also spoken very, very uh, excitedly about the prospect of the club's top scorer historically coming back to the club. Now, given that Abraham was very much a protege of uh, Jody Morris, who is Frank's assistant, but was also head of the under-18s academy team at Chelsea for five years uh, when they achieved unprecedented success and knows Abraham very well, you kind of think that Abraham might have had a chat with Jody, certainly, if not Frank himself, with regards to making his decision to stay at Chelsea. Now, my information, and I, I you know, say to all of you, yes, we reported last week that we thought the compensation package would have been sorted out uh, last week. Well, that wasn't the case, obviously, and um, we don't often get things uh, wrong, so we apologise, or I apologise for that, and we'll... Um, happily report that one of the reasons for that was because Frank himself was about to go on hold for 10 days with his family and was quite 
content to not have that time interrupted. I think as we all would if we uh, had the opportunity to spend a few lovely days in Saint-Tropez in the south of France. He celebrated his 41st birthday last week with friends and family in, in the, the south of France as well. But it seems that Chelsea are getting closer to a uh, solution with Derby County. Um, remember, it's not just Lampard Derby will lose. Um, the compensation for him is £4 million, which is the remaining two years of his contract. But Jody Morris, first team coach, and also Shea Given, goalkeeping coach, but also uh, a trusted advisor as well. My information is that uh, Derby are now seeking and would settle for around £7 million. So that's £3 million more than Lampard's contract valuation. And also a bit of a, it would effectively be a, a gratuity payment almost uh, to Derby in order to uh, get Lampard out of his contract because contractually wise, Chelsea would not be, uh, be obliged to pay that full amount. But in order to smooth uh, Lampard's release, then I believe they're willing to pay £7 million to get that done. And um, I think, Duncan, Abraham's uh, conversation uh, publicly is probably significant, as I said, because you think he would have been told before committing his future next season to Chelsea. But we've spoken a little bit about it in the past, but we also believe that it will be academy players gung-ho for the Lampard-Chelsea of the 2019-2020 season. Yeah, um, I mean, just on the compensation for, for Frank Lampard, what, what I was told is that uh, his contract at Derby includes very significant um, bonuses should he take them up into the Premier League. And um, Derby have been using that as a negotiating um, tool with Chelsea to say, look, uh, the base salary is this amount, but we are committed to pay Frank Lampard up to this amount um, if if he achieves um, various goals, therefore we value the contract at the full amount, and we expect you to uh, to compensate for for that full amount. Um, and also, there's a negotiating process there. But as you say, um, Chelsea have their man as far as they're concerned. Petr Cech has been brought in um, to work uh, as uh, a link between. Marina Granovskaya and the first team and, and Chelsea have made it clear that he will be uh, put in situ with the first team during matches. Um, you have Didier Drogba having been asked to come back as uh, one of the coaches alongside Frank um, and Didier talking positively about Frank's return to Chelsea. You know The path is set there. It's a, it's a matter of um, the contract compensation being agreed with Derby to allow it to to formally happen. Um, in terms of players coming back, yes, I mean, as when, when we told you about this in the transfer podcast, um, I think the week before last, this is strategic on Chelsea's part. Um, they've taken a transfer window ban and said, well, this is our opportunity to demonstrate how good our academy is the academy that uh, Roman Abramovich has put unprecedented amounts of money into over a 15-year period, but has barely produced a first-team player for Chelsea. Just last season, you got for the first time Callum Hudson-Odoi and Ruben Loftus-Cheek effectively establishing themselves as regular choices for the first team. Um, And they are the first uh, academy players to get themselves into that situation. 
Chelsea have a lot of players out on loan elsewhere uh, and a lot of players still coming through the academy. Tammy, Tammy Abrahams is one of those players who they rate highly. This gives them the opportunity with the transfer window ban to integrate those players into the team with coaches who have experience of working with young players. Derby, uh, Frank Lampard at Derby County used a lot of Premier League loan players um, to get them close to promotion to the Premier League. And Jody Morris, as you say, was in charge of the academy team at Chelsea. So he's worked directly with these players before and he knows their qualities within the academy. So it's a, it's a, a very nice environment to have a season of Premier League football, not spend any money on incoming transfers, have an excuse to uh, to use academy players and bring players back from loan and put them in the first team, and uh, and give them that that year to see how they develop. and And we know if you put an English player in a premier, a prominent Premier League side, and he has a half decent season, you add twenty thirty million pounds on his value straight away. So if Tammy Abrahams comes to Chelsea and starts scoring goals for Chelsea in the Premier League. Um, and, he, and he has, you know, there's every chance he can do that and will be given, given the opportunity to do so, given the problems Chelsea have at centre-forward. Um, you're looking at a £50, £60 million pound player easily, very quickly. Um, and someone, if Chelsea decide down the line they want uh, an upgrade at centre-forward, once the transfer window ban is removed, they could then sell him to another club um, for good money. And, and you can repeat that process throughout the team in every position. Um, young English players doing well for a Premier League team have premium values. Uh, so that makes Chelsea's books look good. And um, Chelsea, for some time now, have not been the, the, the Chelsea of the early Roman Abramovich years where, you know, huge sums of money were spent on trying to acquire the best players uh, to try and win the Premier League and win the Champions League and, and basically outmuscle everyone else on the, uh, the transfer market. It's, a, it's now a project which is run to, at worst, avoid making a loss. Um, most of the recruitment policy is about buying players, putting them on loan at other clubs to sell at a profit down the line to fund uh, work on the first team. So, so this situation, while it, it looks like it's um, a disadvantage to Chelsea, and it should be a disadvantage because they can't actually buy in the transfer market. I think from the owner's perspective, from the perspective of the chief executive, it's actually an opportunity. And, uh, and they feel with Lampard, Jody Morris, Didier Drogba, Petr Cech, they're bringing in the right people to, uh, to make the most of that opportunity. And, and as we pointed out, they're also buying themselves insurance with the fans. Because if you're experimenting with younger players, if you've got to go through a season where you can't buy um, on the market, who better to have in charge in terms of fan tolerance than one of their great on-field heroes as manager and then their uh, most popular striker as, a, as an assistant to him and their most popular goalkeeper uh, working alongside him too. It's, um, it, it's, it's clever. We'll see how it works, but it's a very clever strategic move by Chelsea. And speaking of Chelsea strikers, Duncan, although maybe not such an um, successful one as Didier Drogba, I was um, not quite moved to tears by Fernando Torres' tears during his retirement press conference in Japan last weekend. I was actually wondering if the reason he was crying is because he, he realised that in retiring it meant Chelsea didn't have to pay him anymore. 
His, his days of that contract finally came to an end. So, and speaking of Torres, a favourite, favourite player of one Rafael Benitez. Now, only two or three weeks ago, takeover talk spread like a forest fire in the northeast of England as a distant relative of uh, Sheikh Mansour made a bid and indeed completed due diligence. Uh, for the magpies, but it's all gone quiet. Duncan, you've got some news for us, haven't you, with regards to what's happening with Mike Ashley and this prospective takeover? Yes, look, talking to people um, who are monitoring this takeover very carefully because they have personal interests in, in it, um, there, is, there remains great scepticism that um, Sheikh Khaled will complete the deal. Um, and certainly some of the uh, statements that have come out from uh, Dubai, where he's based, about the stages they've gone through in the takeover are being questioned um, by people in the city. They, they think that it's being presented as being more advanced than it actually is. What I'm told is that is not the only group still looking at the club. There's at least two more groups um, attempting to do a takeover at present, but both of them have financial issues in terms of raising cash um, from members of consortium to do the deal um, and also uh, discussion over whether Ashley's valuation of the club, which is £250 million for the equity and taking on about £100 million of debt, which he is owed by the club, so effective price of, of £350 million, whether that is, is reasonable or not. What I've been told is that Ashley himself has put a deadline on these discussions about a takeover for this summer and that he wants uh, a decision one way or the other uh, inside the next two weeks. Why? Because if a takeover is not going to take place, and I think the, the, the fact that, that, that a deadline is being placed on discussions suggests that none of these offers are as near to the line as they have been presented as being. If that deadline has been put in place, it's because Ashley realises if you don't have a buyer um, before, as we get closer and closer to the edge of the transfer window, you have a problem. And if he doesn't have a buyer, he's going to have to manage the club going into next season. Um, that deadline that I've been told of would give him about a month before the transfer window closes, in which to buy and sell players um, for Newcastle for next season and to sort out the issue of, of manager. And this, um, I think, is a very significant issue because Rafa Benitez has an extremely attractive offer from Chinese Super League club, um, Dalian Yifang. Um, and in all probability, he is going to take that offer. So Ashley is about to lose the manager who has, is you know, the main source of popularity of his regime with Newcastle United at the end of this month um, and therefore will require not only a new manager but also to sort out the squad himself uh, going into next season. So I think we're getting close to a resolution one way or the other in Newcastle United and I think the Newcastle United supporters will find out before too long whether they have to endure another year of Mike Ashley's ownership 
or whether there's going to be um, a sea change in, in the way the club is run going into next season. From everything I hear from the people who know Mike Ashley is there will not ever be any change in the way he runs Newcastle United. Um, he has got, got it operating in a way that it doesn't cost him money. Um, it's, it's reasonably efficiently run from a business perspective. It has a value on the market. Um, there are enough people trying to buy the club and asking about the club that he feels at some point someone will bite and he'll get that 250 million he's asking for. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not the main thing in his life by any stretch of the imagination. So he can, he can afford to wait. Uh, so calculate that all in from, uh, from Rafa Benitez's point of view. And I think you can see why there would be a traction in taking a big, big pay offer to get out of English football, um, to go somewhere where managers often go and only spend one year and then move back uh, into European football quite often um, at a bigger club than they started off. So, Duncan, there'll be a lot of tears cried into the Tyne, that's for sure, in Geordie land. He's well loved there. Um, and uh, I think the fans would see that as a betrayal of them should Mike Arsley allow Rafa to leave. Is, is that an exclusive, Ian? Is Fernando Torres retired to Newcastle? <laughs> Maybe he's going to be player manager. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe Chelsea will pay his wages. Now, you'll all be aware, uh, our very um, good listeners, that um, we have uh, given you uh, maybe uh, three stories now which are all very domestically based which is unusual for the transfer because obviously we have our network all over world football and particularly at the very big clubs in Europe uh, so I'm very pleased to say that <clears throat> for those of you and I know you all love the gossip from abroad and the stories from abroad that we bring you um, Duncan Castles very good friend of uh, Mr Danny Alves um, Danny often speaks warmly of Duncan uh, over the old glass of Malbec. Uh, and uh, Danny himself is um, about to move on. Duncan, this is correct. Is, 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 are we right in thinking Danny's leaving Paris Saint-Germain? That bit's correct. The, the stuff that preceded it probably isn't correct. But, oh, yeah, but just indulge us. Indulge us. That he's leaving PSG is correct. And the reason he's leaving is that uh, the new sporting director at Paris Saint-Germain um, has withdrawn the offer of a contract. So it's Leonardo who's returned to Paris Saint-Germain. He's withdrawn the contract offer that had been agreed between um, Danny's representatives and Paris um, during last season, actually, um, and had been sat on the table waiting for Danny to decide whether he wanted to, to take it up or whether he wanted to, to move his career elsewhere. That decision has been taken out of his hands. He announced um, on Brazil duty last week that he would be leaving PSG. Um, and the question is where he goes next. Um, Brazil is a big option for him. Uh, he has a huge status in the country. There's a possibility he returns uh, to Brazilian football was one of the, the top clubs over there. I'm told he also has uh, an offer on the table from at least one um, Champions League club. Um, and interestingly, uh, there has been a conversation with Barcelona about his availability. Um, there is not an offer from Barcelona as it stands, but they're considering the possibility of bringing him back and, and obviously an attractive option for Barca in the sense that there would be no transfer fee involved. Uh, they know exactly what they would have to pay him. He remains popular 
um, with Barcelona supporters and, and more importantly with key Barcelona players. So um, you could potentially see Neymar and Dani Alves returning uh, to Barcelona in the same summer um, and, uh, and putting the band back together uh, as they, they chase the Champions League again. Um, that option for Barcelona becomes interesting in the sense that it could trigger a series of moves um, through European football. So Barcelona have been um, looking to sign a new left-back um, to work alongside Jordi Alba. Uh, they have been considering taking Felipe Luis from um, Atletico, who's out of contract and be signed on free as, as that backup to Alba. If they were to take Danny, that would allow them to sell Nelson Semedo, um, who is of interest to several clubs in Europe, one of them being Juventus. Um, and Juventus, of course, as we've told you, are in the process of negotiating a deal to sell Jean Cancelo to Manchester City. So there you have um, the possibility of Semedo, who's quite a similar type of, of fullback uh, to um, Jean Cancelo coming in as replacement and Bani, who used to be at Juventus, ironically, uh, moving back to Barcelona as the um, as the kind of attacking alternative to Sergio Roberto, um, taking that attacking alternative role that Semedo has been playing for them. Now, if that would then generate money for Barcelona because they'd be taking money from Juventus for Nelson Semedo, perhaps 30 million or upwards, and allow them to go for a, um, a younger uh, choice at left back. So one player that they like at left back is the Portuguese um, international Rafael Guerrero, who's at Borussia Dortmund. So then they could um, potentially, instead of just taking Felipe uh, Luis on a free transfer, shift the, the money from Semedo into buying a left back from Dortmund. And then you see Dortmund would have to go in and pick up a left back from elsewhere. So um, it's interesting how just one switch a one decision taken by a top club in terms of the retention or um, or the cancellation of a contract offered to a player can open up a whole, potentially open up a whole chain of, of moves around Europe for other players. And we're getting to that stage of the window where these these chains are, are starting to come into place so that, you know, one, one purchase at the top end filters down through a number of clubs uh, allows cash and opens up opportunities for, for players to move elsewhere. Well, indeed, Doug, was just listening to you there. I was feeling a bit dizzy because I thought it was the merry-go-round, but in actual fact, it's more, <laughs> of, it's more of a Rubik's Cube than a merry-go-round. It's the Castle's Cube of transfers in terms of how, how things all fit into place. Let's see if uh, all those clubs can get at least one block colour on one side of the cube and uh, see their dreams come true. Wouldn't quite be a transfer window podcast if we didn't have a little bit of Manchester United news, people. I'm pleased to say some good news for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer amongst all what seems to be uh, doom and gloom and negativity with regards to their transfer window so far. Duncan, we have been slightly sceptical about the recruitment of Daniel James, but interestingly, we've both received much more positive reports in the last few days. Can you give us your news first and I will follow up? Yeah, I, I mean, as you say, uh, when we talked about Daniel James previously, I, I've been pretty sceptical 
on the basis of talking to scouts and uh, coaches who worked with them and uh, a sense that it was a bizarre deal for United to do um, and that no other top six club was trying to sign him. I talked to another uh, person, a uh, senior recruitment person last week whose, whose opinion of players I trust greatly and asked him about Daniel James and his view was, uh, yeah, he's excellent. Um, he is incredibly quick over the first uh, one or two metres. Powerful player. Um, someone this this person would like to have, have signed himself if he had the opportunity. Um, and says he thinks he has a lot of potential um, as an attacking player. He said his view was that Manchester might Manchester United might be a step too early for him if it had been his uh, choice of, of planning the player's career. He, he thinks he would be better moving to an intermediate Premier League club where he'd have uh, less pressure on him and more opportunity to play um, and develop his skills. And interestingly, he thinks that um, the way James plays is, is more suited to a counter-attacking team than a team that you would expect to uh, have a lot of ball in the opposition half. And, and his reservation for James at Manchester United is that uh, he needs space to run into. He's at his best when he's got a lot of um, room to use his pace into and drive direct at the opponent's goals and, and wonders whether he, would, uh, he might struggle a little against back defences playing as a winger. Um, his suggestion was fascinating. He said that if it was him and he was he was signing him, he'd signed him for Manchester United. What he would do would be to play him at right back, because he thinks defensively he, he's good and uh, and has the capabilities to be a fullback. Uh, but if you played him at right back, you'd give him the space to run into and hit crosses, in much the way that um, Trent Alexander Arnold and Andy Robertson play at, at Liverpool. So you'd maximise his his physical potential, his speed over the ground. And, and make it easier for him to contribute to the attack, which um, well, a fascinating view of, of how you can use a player, uh, but also quite ironic given that Manchester United have just agreed to spend £55 million on a, on a new right-back. But um, the positive side is he thinks uh, Daniel James is a good signing for the club, and so there is at least one uh, counter view to, to what we've been telling you so far on the on the transfer window about it. No, there's there's two, Duncan, and and I'm sure um, old friend of the transfer window podcast, Mr. Liam Mussini, will not mind me mentioning his name uh, because a conversation I've had with him over the last couple of days. Um, most of you will have seen Liam's excellent analysis as the lead Sky Sport pundit on the championship and indeed the EFL in the last season as well as a man who is very very uh, studious of the championship in terms of um, his interest in that league and his experience of playing in that league as well and um, when we spoke about Daniel James he said to me I saw him a lot for Swansea uh, last season I think um, he's got potential he has a skill set which uh, is possible to use very positive in the Premier League. However, his decision-making is not always the best when he gets into the final third. Um, if that can be uh, trained and honed by Solskjaer and his coaching team, then James, in terms of his final pass, in terms of decisions he makes when he gets himself into that space that Duncan's been talking about and running into ahead of it, then could well be someone who would be an asset to Manchester United at a time when clearly 
they absolutely need uh, not just more uh, varia- variability in terms of the creative play, but also they need someone to provide the final ball for strikers to get more goals because that's where they're lacking as well. So, yeah, um, as I said, we're always very uh, keen to be um, as informative as we possibly can on the transfer window so that we're bringing you those views of people who we trust our contacts in terms of Daniel James and how he can indeed um, help United to become a better and more competitive team next season. My, my, my question for you, Ian, was, um, was Liam sober? And were you sober when that was <laughs> Actually, we were. It's true, Duncan, what you're referring to was a dinner that Liam and I had last week when uh, a glass of wine may have been taken. But this conversation took place over the weekend when, uh, yes, we are both definitely uh, studious uh, uh, students of um, the Championship and Daniel James. And as I said, I'm reporting Liam's views, not mine. He's the man with the UEFA Pro Licence He's a man who saw James play a lot for um, Swansea last season, so I'm happy to pass that on. I'm sure he's quite uh, content for me to pass that on. So as I said, positive news for Manchester United fans. Um, We hope to obviously bring you uh, more news on Manchester United's transfer business in the next few episodes of the transfer window, and indeed it's something we pride ourselves on, and I'm sure that you will be listening out for that. You know you'll hear it here first as well. Ian, I've got a a bit of new information for you um, about Nicola Pepe uh, there was a report I think in L'Equipe today that Inter have offered over 80 million euros um, for Pepe uh, which is over the uh, the price that uh, Lille are asking for a player who has been inquired about by Manchester United, is fancied by Liverpool uh, is an option for Bayern Munich should um, they not uh, managed to convince Leroy Zani to come to the club and agree a fee with Manchester City. Um, just checked that with Leo and they're telling me that there is no official offer from Inter um, at that price um, or at any price for the player. So um, if you're a Liverpool or Manchester United fan, still hoping that uh, he's going to be coming to your club there. Um, there is hope there. Uh, it's not uh, It's not a done deal as yet. It is that time in the Monday edition of the Transfer Window where we vote for our heroes and villains of the past few days of football. Um, I'll pass it to Duncan first because um, uh, as the great uh, Tristram Shandy said in the novel, a man and his hobby horse should never be separated so neither should Duncan and his hobby horse. Duncan, give it to us. <laughs> um, well, in this case, I think uh, the villain is... Uh, the International Football Association Board, which is the body that decides on rule changes. Um, FIFA, who oversee that body, have had a, a long history of being very gentle with rule changes to football. You know, they, they do them subtly. They do them um, in a considered fashion. They usually trial them um, before implementing them into the international rules, which are supposed to be followed by everyone. Uh, what they've done with this latest set of changes to the rules is, I think, probably the most radical um, single-season change ever. There was a big rewrite um, the summer before last, but that was essentially to tidy up the English and make them easier to understand. Not too many of the fundamental rules changed. But this time, they have gone for it. We've talked previously about the the issues with the handball rule, which we're going to see in full flow. 
um, next season. But I think uh, the Women's World Cup has has very uh, clearly demonstrated that they've they've made a big mistake on changing um, the rule about goalkeepers encroaching at penalty kicks. Uh, we've seen a number of games in which uh, goalkeepers have been penalised for having their uh, foot beyond the line uh, as the kicker takes the ball. Um, Scotland-Argentina game, the most uh, obvious example of it. Um, FIFA have actually had to temporarily change the implementation of this rule during the tournament in the sense that they've accepted that uh, goalkeepers should be yellow-carded for encroaching at penalty kicks during penalty shootouts. Um, why have they done that? Because they realised that the, the way it was being refereed was VAR being used to judge whether they come uh, crossed over the line or not was going to result in goal, goalkeepers being sent off in penalty shootouts, so even more chaos down the line. I've never seen this before. I've never seen FIFA change the rules of football during a tournament. Um, and I think if they retain that rule in place for next season, we're going to have uh, serious problems with the potential of goalkeepers being sent off during matches, being picked up by VAR for being marginally over the over the line when a kick is taken. And um, I think there's there's a, a, an even bigger problem here, which I, I haven't seen FIFA and IFAB respond to, is that um, they don't seem to be using the, the, the correct camera angle to decide on whether keepers have encroached or not. In that Scotland game, they showed a picture of the goalkeeper um, from behind, i.e. from a, a, a camera that was in, in the net, uh, as evidence that she had come off the line. But you can't use a camera angle from behind because that will automatically, um, because of the angle, look like the goalkeeper is over the line. And the rule is that you have to actually be standing on the line when the kicker's taking it. You have to have your foot on the line or above the line. Um, so to judge that, the only way you can properly judge that is to have a camera looking along the goal line. And I don't see that being used um, by VAR at present. So yet another example of um, VAR coming, causing problems in football and an example of a rewrite, an ill-considered rewrite of the rules causing um, huge problems in the game. So uh, villains of the week, FIFA and IFAB for me. Now, that's weird, Duncan, because we've had goal decision system in the Premier League for about five years now, which specifically um, has been designed to look across the line in order to decide whether the ball has crossed the line. So why wouldn't GTS be able to be used for a goalkeeper coming off the line? It's a different problem. Um, uh, When you're using, judging whether a ball goes over the line, you're only looking at the ball. If If you think about it, you need two elements in the judgment of whether a goalkeeper is encroached, whether that goalkeeper is over the line and when the ball was kicked. So the the goal line technology can't do the second part because it doesn't know when the ball is kicked. Um, and in fact, there's the, the, this is a, another issue with VAR. We've been told that VAR is impeccable and offside, but actually it comes down to an operator deciding when first contact was made with the ball um, and then freezing video at that stage uh, to to see what the position of the, of the defenders were and the position of the attackers relative to, to them when the, the ball was hit. So you're going to have the same problem on penalty kicks and you certainly can't do it from an angle behind the goal or for an angle in front of the goal. You need an angle um, 
that is uh, on the goal line allows you to see when the, the kicker's taken it um, to judge whether the goalkeeper's over the line or not. And, you know, that's before we get to the question of do you really want to make such um, fractional decisions about um, goalkeepers coming off the line and have everything decided by VAR? Um, when you, you're talking in some of these ones, you know, millimetres of difference over, over the goalkeeper coming off the line and awkward. We seem to have gone from uh, clear and obvious errors to be corrected in very specific situations and limited situations to, oh, we've got a video now, let's re-referee the entire game because we can do it. Well, indeed, and it was a decision um, in the England's court, uh, round of 16 match with Cameroon, uh, a very, very marginal offside uh, for Cameroon, which, dis- which uh, disallowed a goal for that team, which brings me to my hero, or indeed heroine, given we're sticking with the Women's World Cup. And um, <clears throat> I've decided to go for much to Duncan's chagrin for VAR, or I'm going to go full hog here. Duncan suggested that I should rename it Vary, but I'm going to call her Valerie after that wonderful song. Uh, will you come on over to Valencia N? Valerie, uh, for Valerie's heroic performance in ensuring England's progress to the quarterfinals to play Norway later this week. Um, one can only say that it was a little bit controversial in uh, lots of decisions that happened, but uh, the outcome um, in terms of England fans was clearly the right one. Uh, so Valerie, you are this week's Transfer Window Podcast hero. If you belt out that tune at any point in the future, we'll love you even more. So to continue the debate about Valerie or Vary or VAR and IFAB and Danny James and, of course, Danny Alves, who's, of course, his ex-wife is his agent, and we think she might also become uh, masking herself as Mina Raiola, please get in touch uh, with us at our own t- Twitter handle at Transfer Podcast to contain the conversation individually with Duncan and I. Of course, you can get in touch with Dr. D at Duncan Castles and me at Garbo FJ. We have recently had a spate of our loyal listeners giving us a five-star review on iTunes, which once again, we much appreciate. If you like what you hear, give something back and do that. Pop onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. We expand the community, we expand the podcast, which we're doing on a week-by-week basis. Makes everything more exciting, makes everything better for the listening experience. All that's left for me to say is thank you for listening and we will see you through the transfer window on Wednesday for your questions answered. Thanks for listening. Mm